Welcome to Plodcast, episode 41. Good to have you with, uh, good to have you with me. Um, thanks for coming. So let's talk a little bit about Israel and the Middle East. Um, and uh, I, let me set the stage for this by, by saying that when I watch the evening news, I, I watch a, a special report, um, Brett Baer's show, Special Report, and I uh, record it during the day and, and then either before dinner or after dinner. It's an hour show, and because it's recorded, I can, I can uh, fly through the commercials. I can fast forward through the commercials, and I can fly through stories that I'm not interested in, or I can fly through stories, and this is my point, I can fly through stories that are always basically the same story. And usually Middle East conflict, are, it's just the same thing over and over again. So there have been wars and crises and skirmishes and fights and intifadas and since I was a, since I was a boy. So um, Israel was formed as a nation in 1948. I was born in 1953, a little bit later. And for my entire life, I remember... Um, I remember periodic interventions into my consciousness of things, uh, big, big doings in the Middle East. Now, uh, so, so there's a temptation, a, um, a natural temptation, which I, I periodically give way to is, okay, it's, this is the same old thing, and I just uh, blow through it. But there are certain things about the conflict in the Middle East that I think Christians need to... Um, I think be be more reflective about uh, pay more uh, pay better attention to when you're looking at the middle when you're looking at the conflict in the Middle East the first thing you have to do is distinguish uh, Zionism from uh, your support for one nation or the or another in the conflict if you support any uh, Zionism is the idea that uh, we should establish a homeland for Jews in the Middle East. That was an issue in the late 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. Uh, that's how Israel got to be Israel, was um, uh, as a result of the Balfour Declaration and the Jews um, settled on a homeland in their, in their ancient homeland, the homeland from biblical times. They were offered territory in Uganda um, but turned it down. Um, they wanted to be, they wanted to be in Palestine. Now, um, Zionism is was the the political movement that thought that that was a good idea. Thought that was a great idea that we can um, we can plant a Jewish nation here in the Middle East. It'll be totally great. <laughs> okay. Now, going back. Uh, Going back in time, if I had a time machine and I went and I were to go back to, to uh, give my input on whether Zionism was a good idea, I'm afraid that I would um, not think so. I don't think Zionism. I don't think it's a fulfillment of prophecy. I don't think there's any antecedent claim on the land that the Jews have in the in the Bible. Um, the Jews are always summoned to return to the Lord first and to the land second. It's not. Uh, there's, there's no a priori claim that the Jews have on that land um, independent of uh, their relationship with God. And that's all tied up with um, 
the coming of the Christ and the and God's establishment of the new Israel, etc. So I'm not a theological Zionist. I'm not a theological Zionist. At the same time, uh, in, in a similar way, I'm not an adherent of the doctrine of manifest destiny here in North America. So manifest destiny was the idea that um, that it was obvious that uh, the white man uh, east of the Mississippi needed to march all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So manifest destiny was the idea that it's all ours. It's it's obviously ours. We need to take it. It's our manifest destiny. I don't buy the claims being made by the now deceased advocates of manifest destiny. I don't buy it. I don't agree with it. If I were there at the time with what I know now, I would not be a cheerleader for manifest destiny. All that is great, but I still live in Idaho. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm, I'm not an advocate of manifest destiny, but I am a beneficiary of those who did believe in manifest destiny. I live in Idaho. And there's no way to unscramble the egg, right? There's, um, what, would, what would human history look like if we set some date 300 years ago, let's say, and we said, okay, that's the ideal state of affairs. I want, we want everybody to go back to their, their spot that they occupied 300 years ago. Well, I'm sorry. The monkeys are out of the cage. It doesn't work that way. You can't unscramble the egg. All of those things are true. So uh, when I look at the Middle East snarl, and it is a Middle East snarl, I'm looking at it as someone who's not a Zionist, not a theological Zionist. I'm not a Christian Zionist. I'm not. Um, but all this happened in the middle of the last century. And Israel is there now, just like I'm in Idaho now. I'm, I can put on my stern face and disapprove of manifest destiny all I want, and yet my house is in Idaho, where the Nez Perce used to be. So my disapproval of manifest destiny doesn't change or alter uh, where I live or where it, where it is even possible for me to live. So I look at the Middle East, I look at Israel. Israel's there now. It's just a, an accomplished fact. We ought to recognize that fact and accept it. Okay? Now, because there's no, uh, there is no way to peace in the Middle East without simple recognition of Israel's right to exist and to be a sovereign nation and to occupy the space she's currently occupying. I'm not getting into... Gaza and, and the West Bank just just yet. I might touch on that in a minute. When I'm when I'm uh, looking at this state of affairs and this perpetual conflict from around the world, and you ask me where are where are your sympathies? Yeah, we got it. You're not a Zionist, but where are your sympathies? Uh, my sympathies are with Israel, and I'm going to give two reasons. There are any number of reasons for this, but I'm going to give I'm going to give two. Uh, for why my uh, to to describe why my reflexive sympathies are the way they are, if if I'm uh, traveling somewhere in that part of the world, and uh, you know, let's say I'm in Egypt or you know, and there's a big political crisis, 
in the country where I am. And I, I become part of my, uh, I and my companions head to the airport and they're flying people, they're flying Americans out as quickly as possible. And they're just trying to get them out of Egypt before it melts down. And they're just loading people on the plane. And then they say, uh, do you want to go to, you, do you want to fly to Israel or do you want to fly to any of the other countries in that part of the world? You know, do you want to be a refugee in Israel or do you want to be a refugee in Jordan or in Saudi Arabia? You know, for my money, it'd be Israel every day of the week. Um, it would be a basically Israel is a European country transplanted into the Middle East. And European countries are closer to uh, what I'm used to here in the States. It's more conducive. There, uh, I, would have, I would have more conducive to my way of life, more conducive to um, uh, what I know and expect, etc. So that is simply a description of what I would choose. So the, my second reason gets, gets more at why I would, why I would choose it. Uh, and this is because of Israel's hypocrisy. And someone might say, well, that's a strange thing. Well, let me, uh, let me explain further. When uh, Israel is accused by her enemies of all kinds of atrocities, and Israel hotly denies them. Now, I wasn't, you know, I was, you could say that I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And I know that a country that does not know God, um, is not in any way a Christian country that has had to fight for its survival over the years, as Israel has had to do, is a nation that is capable of dirty deeds. They are capable of doing, doing bad things. I'm not trying to pretend that Israel is clean and pure. But I believe that they are civilized enough that when they do these things, they have to deny them. They have to deny that they've done them. Sometimes they deny that they've done them because they really didn't do them. Other times they deny that they've done them because they can't afford to let the truth out. If you compare this to Israel's enemies, just take uh, take the example of bombing, you know, bombing civilians. When a terrorist blows up a delicatessen or blows up a pizza parlor in Tel Aviv or there's some sort of terrorist attack and a bunch of junior high kids are deliberately targeted, there will be, you know, uh, some radical Muslim organization that having uh, uh, pulled off this terrorist attack, this suicide bomber attack, will then take responsibility for the attack. In other words, they targeted civilians, they attacked civilians, they killed a bunch of civilians, they killed a bunch of kids on purpose, and then after the fact, they said, yeah, that's what we did, um, make something of it, try to, try to make something of it. And I would say that that is wicked. That is wicked. Uh, someone once said, forget who the gent was now, but he, he said that, Hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And uh, there is no conceivable way that Israel 
could target, deliberately target innocent civilians and then avow after the fact that that's what they had done. If they said, yeah, we killed a bunch of civilians, that'll teach them not to, you know, be support. That'll teach them not to do what they're doing. Um, if Israel were to say something like that, the whole world would come unstuck. Um, in other words, Israel is a nation that is held to some kind of account. It's held to some kind of account. And in, in ways that Hamas is not, in ways that Iran is not, in, in, in ways that um, the Muslim Brotherhood is not. So, uh, sympathy, general, generic sympathy is not the same thing as universal approval. Um, and that would, be, um, that would be something I think we ought to take into account as we think about a very complicated situation. So my book this time around is The Conservative Mind by uh, uh, Russell Kirk. The Conservative Mind by Russell Kirk. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the values of... Um, uh, he, he starts his history of conservative thought with Burke. Uh, one of the values of the conservative temperament is that it is not ideological. One of the problems that we have to uh, face about the, 20, about the era we live in, 20th century uh, and the 21st century so far, is that we have been afflicted by ideologies, abstract systems in the sky that someone reads a book about, adopts it as his system, and says, it will be totally great. We will usher in a utopia when we get everyone to conform to this particular um, set of uh, principles. The ideologue can be a Marxist. Um, so uh, Marxism killed a hundred million people in pursuit of um, in pursuit of this abstract idealistic system. The conservative is suspicious of systems. He's suspicious of systems, not because. Uh, they're going to do anything bad, you know, on the whiteboard where you, you where you sketched it out. You know, here's my ideal, um, my ideal republic, or my ideal relationship between the king and parliament, or my ideal uh, approach to jurisprudence, or whatever. Um, he's ha he's happy to participate in the seminar discussion with you, but. When people start putting their heads together and they become activists, the way the Marxists did, the way anarchists do, the way environmentalists do when they engage in, um, in political activity, they are pursuing an ideology. The conservative uh, is biased in, the fa in, in, in favor of what currently is and, as Lord Falkland uh, put it uh, one time, uh, when it is ne not necessary to change, it is necessary not to change. The conservative prefers the devil he knows to the devil he doesn't know. Um, Ambrose Bierce, in his uh, 
book, The Devil's Dictionary, compared a liberal and a conservative. Uh, um, a conservative is someone who wants to preserve existing evils as opposed to the liberal who wishes to replace them with others. So the ideologue is the person who says, if we burn this down, if we throw this out, if we get rid of this particular thing that's caused the latest outrage, then we're going to usher in a new era. But the problem is this. Um, whenever you have a bunch of people marching on Washington demanding reform, and it could be whatever it is, when you have a bunch of people with placards singing songs and carrying signs, mostly say hooray for our side, when they're doing that, when people are agitating for reforms, almost always the reform they want is a reform of the previous wave of reforms. In other words, they're calling upon the government to fix what the government did last time in response to whoever was marching then. The conservative is someone who says, let's let cultures and societies change, but organically, slowly, steadily over time, let's not do anything drastic. Uh, the conservative is suspicious of, of uh, those who overpromise as a result of the drastic changes that you're called upon to make right now, right this minute. Um, so Russell Kirk, in this book, The Conservative Mind, is giving us a survey, starting with Burke, and he works through uh, a number of um, conservative writers and thinkers showing, demonstrating, uh, laying out how their suspicions of the ideologues are fully, completely, totally justified. So, Hamartiology. Again, Hamartiology. We're, this is uh, podcast episode 41, and our segment is today about um, sins of omission. So, the New Testament describes sins of omission in different ways. One of them is found in Hebrews 13, 17 where the saints are told to avoid making their rulers assigned task a grief. They are to be the kind of parishioners that are, that are a joy to serve, not a grief. When this is not done, the result is unprofitable. Alusiteles, alusiteles, uh, unprofitable. It's not profitable for the parishioners themselves. What they're doing is uh, behaving in such a way as to create an unprofitable waste. When worshipers in a particular church community find that the whole experience is unprofitable for them, this is one of the possible reasons they should check. So, uh, we're, we're told in Hebrews 13 17 that the parishioners should avoid making their ruler's life a grief, and when they do that, with if they are making their ruler's lives or vocations a grief, the end result is no profit for them, for the parishioners. Now, uh, as one of my daughters uh, said one time, there's a difference between, you know, you commonly, you sometimes hear Christians saying, well, I just, I'm not feeling fed anymore. Um, and that does happen. There are times when you, you go to the, go to church and the 
minister should be putting food on the table, but he's not putting food on the table. And it would be appropriate for people to say, well, I'm just not being fed anymore. But as my daughter pointed out, there's a difference between not being fed and going on a hunger strike. Um, Oftentimes, parishioners, it's not that they're not being fed. It's that they're angry at the cook. And if they're angry at the cook and they're making uh, themselves a nuisance for the cook, uh, we're told in Hebrews, that's, un- that's unprofitable. You're not going to be nourished by that. You're, that's not going to be a help for you. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.